0: I'm here with Matt Steckman, who is the Chief Revenue Officer at Endural Industries. Matt, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Yeah, thanks for having me. Mark Andreessen has a pretty interesting thesis where he's basically saying, you're not just going to sprinkle artificial intelligence onto all these different applications. It's actually the foundation for a new type of platform, and that will kind of like replace the old. And his corollary there is basically that new AI companies will also be replacing the kind of cloud and mobile native companies as well in the future. Do you have like an opinion on that? Where do you see it going?
1: Yeah, I I think from the Enduro perspective, there's probably a couple of interesting things to unpack um, just sort of within that set of statements. Probably three things. So first, sort of what is a platform? We should talk about what that actually means in the software context. The second is why it is so hard to sprinkle AI on top of existing systems and then have sort of magical things happen. And the the third piece in there is probably something around, like, uh, what does it actually take for one of these new systems to disrupt an old? So there's, like, a bunch of things that we can, we can sort of
0: talk about, uh, you
1: know, depending on where you want to start, or should I just start riffing from, from there?
0: Yeah, just start riffing. Actually, yeah. it would be nice to kind of go over, you know, what do we mean when we talk about platforms versus applications? And, and, you know, why is it so difficult for artificial intelligence in particular for, for it to just be kind of just like, hey, I already have a, an existing infrastructure and everything. Why can't I just put a new algorithm on that yeah. and tell me the answer? Yeah. So first, uh, so taking a platform approach
1: to technology generally means for the most part, uh, how can you think about solving a problem in a general way? and using the same set of tools to solve that problem and adjacent problems over and over and over and over again. That's sort of one of the the big principles of a platform. I would say that the second sort of big piece to it is a platform means there's a community of developers uh, and users that can uh, interact with uh, the platform, enhance it, build on top of it, uh, and eventually it sort of blends into the background. It's just sort of the ubiquitous tooling. Uh, And so that implies that you have to take an approach that is open, extensible, and from a sort of a private company perspective, you know, realizing that in the future, it's not just going to be the thing that your people touch, it's going to be the thing that all of your customers touch. That approach to software is quite different. I think you see a lot of this approach in Silicon Valley, where the idea is the more users, sort of the more beneficial the software, and therefore better my company does. Like, it's that simple. I think you don't see this a lot traditionally in the government world because the incentives are a bit different, particularly around code reuse. If you're dealing with, you know, as you've talked about in sort of multiple publications, time and material, cost plus, things like that, it doesn't quite matter how fast you go on things. It's not how you get paid, but it is how you get paid if you're a product company like we are. So that sort of from the start um, starts to frame sort of like, okay, so why can't you take that kind of concept and just sprinkle it on top of existing things. It actually almost comes, comes down to if you don't consider autonomy and artificial intelligence from the very start of your project, you probably end up making design choices that inhibit the ability to use that, you know, sort of towards the end state good and simple example is the Anduril Sentry uh, Tower. So this is uh, sort of one of our flagship products. It allows you to effectively create a sensor bubble around any fixed point on the earth where you know literally anything happening within that bubble and the AI is able to identify and characterize and track those things. If we didn't assume that that was operating in absence of a human looking at a screen or controlling it from a joystick from the very start, we would have made many, many, many design choices along the way, where at the end, it would not have been able to sort of backtrack and then add the AI later. Sort of multiplying that by all the complexity you see in more complex aircraft platforms and ships and tanks and things like that, I mean, you start to sort of understand how how difficult it will be to try and go back in time and add this stuff as opposed to thinking about it fresh
0: and how we're going to design stuff moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... You know, what kinds of defense missions do you think uh you'll see AI performing in the next, you know, five years or so? You mentioned Century. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And then kinda of where do you see the ecosystem going? Yeah. So you know, okay. five years is let's call that the short term in the
1: defense world. Yeah. <laughs> the end of the fit up. Yep, that's sort of now, right? Um I think probably in two primary ways. So I think you're gonna see AI allow for greater standoff distances from our people and our assets to, uh, frankly, where the danger is. So getting machines to be in harm's way rather than, than people, I think that's uh, something we're seeing now and something that the Defense Department is obviously all about supporting and certainly things we, we do at ANDERL here. I think in the next five years, you'll start to see a move towards large numbers of attributable machines, some machines that you can Lose a couple here and there, and it's no big deal, as opposed to sort of the traditional, single, exquisite, very expensive system where the survivability of it is is absolutely critical. And I think you'll see, really, in the short term, in the next five years, AI and autonomy start to drive the department towards this concept of attributable technology and its
0: deployment on the battlefield. So one of the things that we've been hearing a little bit about, and I think it's something that we're going to hear more about in the future, and it actually kind of, you know, enables a lot of these AI applications in the field is edge computing. So can you just like give our listeners a feel for what is edge computing? How does that connect to to the broader mission? And then, you know, what are some challenges and opportunities you see there?
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny, the Defense Department and really the commercial world in many ways has sort of just caught up to the reality that cloud computing should replace you know, brick-and-mortar servers and things like that. And now all of a sudden, industry and, and certainly a lot of these bleeding-edge companies are saying, oh, you don't need a centralized control center anymore. What you actually need is to push all of the thinking, all of the thoughts that these machines might have uh, to the very edge. So every single sensor, aircraft, uh, ground vehicle, whatever, can process its own information on board, make a certain set of decisions that you've allowed it to make, and only send back the relevant information to the command elements in the field. Uh, What this allows you to do is to create expeditionary warfighting architectures, so the ability to very quickly spin up anywhere in the world uh, without a very large, heavy infrastructure footprint like a command center, uh, execute whatever mission you might have, pack up, and go somewhere else. Um, And I think that uh, if you look at the national defense strategy, that's where things have to go because we're going to move from sustained uh, counterterrorism, counterinsurgency sort of in CENTCOM Middle East to what will likely be sort of little skirmishes here and there across the globe. Uh, And so having this capability to set up, pack up, pack down extremely fast, relying on edge computing for the most part and, and keeping all of that horsepower
0: and processing power out in the field with you, uh, sort of allows for that, some of those unique abilities. Do you see the confluence of some of these technologies and the ability to manage data, and especially, for example, attributable systems? Do you think that would actually kind of change the paradigm that we have, where we tend to have really huge sustainment costs, you know, like 70% usually is in sustainment of existing hardware in the field. And, you know, one of the things about software is has a very low marginal cost. Most of it's upfront, so do you think by fielding some of these systems, we might actually get out of what might be kind of like a vicious cycle where most of the costs are now being consumed on the back end and we can't invest in the front end? Do you think, you know, some of these technologies can actually, you know, whether it's predictive maintenance or just the attributable systems, that they would be lower operating costs and we can push more money back into the investment side?
1: I actually think it, it fundamentally changes how you buy things. So if you're going from a world where you're replacing one aircraft with 100, let's just use a silly contrived example, suddenly you're not actually thinking about acquiring an aircraft because why would you think about acquiring 100 different things? What you're actually thinking about is acquiring a capability. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, the commercial world in a lot of ways has solved this. There's a lot of buying things as a service in the commercial world where you're not actually thinking about the product itself, you're thinking about the outcome that it's driving for you. And so if you think about it, if I buy a hundred of these attributable machines to do the mission of that one thing that I perhaps formerly had, I can use all sorts of interesting buying methods, like as a service, where what I'm actually saying to my industry partners is I want this capability and here's some key descriptive statistics of it. And as long as it's meeting it, you can meet it however you want. And I'm just going to keep paying my services fee, you know, just like you pay your cell phone bill at the end of every month. You don't care how many towers there are, or how the packets are popping around, or uh, frankly, you probably don't even care. What, mostly about your device, what you care about is the service that that device is, is providing. And I think those same principles can be applied to these sort of swarm capabilities or large number of device capabilities, where each and every single device you actually stop caring about, and you care about what the whole network can give you.
0: Yeah, we've I think we've heard a little bit about you know outcomes-based contracting and all that against specific you know, specifications that or requirements that the military might have, and then it kind of puts their bias on what the outcome of the system will actually be. But for us to kind of change the paradigm is kind of what you're saying there. We're buying a capability. We're trying to see more like as a service. Does that mean more of the decisions of what the product will look like and how we'll act will actually be back in the industry sector or the venture slash startup kind of interaction? So I guess the question is, What's the role of industry self-financing and venture capital there versus, like, when does government kind of come in and say, like, oh, well, we actually need the drones to do this or that? Should they see a demonstration and a prototype before they kind of enter that system? Or should they really be at the bleeding edge, the front edge of that?
1: Yeah. Oh, man, there's a lot of things packed in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll take a whack at it. So, yes, I do think the government needs to get in the business of demanding outcomes from industry. Mm -hmm. I think in some parts they absolutely do. Um, I think in some parts we're still a little bit behind where we're being much too prescriptive in how we go about solving some of these problems. I also think that if the government is demanding outcomes and then challenging industry to meet those outcomes and testing industry, and at the end of those tests there are large reoccurring contract payments that can happen in a reasonable amount of time within the same fiscal year, would be the hope um, that a large number of private sector organizations backed by 10, 15, 20 times more private capital will rise to the challenge to try and meet those outcomes. I think we've never really been in that world before where the government says, here it is you know show up at you know White Sands or Yuma Proving Ground or China Lake with your, your toy. It has to basically do these things. winner take all or several winners take all. And let's see what happens. I would like to see more of that. Uh, and I think you'll see the private sector react really positively to things like that.
0: I tend to agree with you. and one of the issues that i I see with that kind of construct is just, I guess first, you know, a commitment problem from government, right? Because they tend to have their programs, plans, and budgets kind of lined up over at least a five year time frame. And it takes two years to kind of get that budget moving onto something different. And you've written a little bit about this, so I'd actually like you to to kind of talk about this because we have this issue, we often call it the valley of death in government technology. And, you know, you're on an interesting side of that. You're facing the valley of death and you're trying to bridge it right now and you're doing a pretty good job of it at an Enduro. So I'd just like to ask you, you know, how does that look for you as industry bridging that valley of death? And then, you know, is that program of record, that commitment on the back end? Hey, I did something great. You wanted something great. Will you actually give me money for it? You know, you've had some recommendations there. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Let's talk about sort of what it looks like now. And yeah. then, you know, what in Matt Stackman's perfect world things might <laughs> look like. Um, you know, so now uh, there's a lot of ways to get access to, to start sort of small pilots, Let's actually use numbers here. I think it's actually worthwhile talking about things and in, in sort of relative size of contracts and things like that. So there are many ways, and the government should frankly be applauded over the last 10 years to start a pilot, you know, let's say under a million dollars. And now for folks that are not familiar with the defense world, they would say, oh, a million dollars, that's a lot. It, it actually isn't in the defense world. And, you know, there's DIU, there's AFWorks, there's SOFTWORKS, there's multiple methods to start fast. Uh, which is great. And I think we've seen a lot of starts because of all of those methods and because of the outreach that those organizations have performed sort of to the technical world and to Silicon Valley. You do your pilot. Again, this is what the real world looks like now. You do your pilot. It's very successful. Everyone's happy. And now you're stuck. You have to be able to transition this to either a service or maybe directly to a co-com if it's an urgent type of a thing. That organization needs a program office that can run it and take it. That organization needs to have those people and those things budgeted for. They need a plan to scale and they need a budget plan of which they probably would have had to submit two years ago for your own project because of how the sort of the defense budget process works. It's like you're basically requesting things now for things that will arrive two, if not three years from now. And so you end up in a sticky spot where in that two to three year window, you have this amazing thing that was tested and validated by a government sponsor, but there's nowhere for it to go. You have to wait. Which is fine for large companies because they have, you know, hundreds of other things going on and they can sustain through those those couple of years of, of waiting. But if we're trying to access new entrants and new tech, that waiting period is sort of a death spell. And those companies either won't participate from the start because they'll be counseled by their advisors not to do it, or once they are in that waiting period, they'll say, yeah, actually, this has applicability in the commercial market, and I can go make 10, 50, 100 sales right now, and then start to generate positive revenue. So that that's sort of the valley of, of death in the traditional sense. There are ways to sort of hack your way through it. They're, they're pretty ugly. There are urgent needs processes. There are unfunded product lists and requirements. All of these things are muscle movements that are not common within the department. And hacking your slicing, uh, gritting your way through it is is pretty painful. Um, And it's what sort of we have to do at Andrel. We're we're only two years old, so we haven't even been around since the budgets that were approved sort of prior to our company forming were formed. What I wish would happen in the perfect world is uh, sort of three things. So I I think if these three things are thought through and accounted for, actually we, we probably don't have to hack and slice our defense acquisitions world as much. I think the private sector will just sort of rise up to participate. I and mean, I think those three things are more rapidly competing programs because new technologies will come along that can unseat a program you know, faster than the 5, 7, 10, 20-year cycle that some of these programs are competed at. If a competition bears a winner that is not the incumbent, large amounts of capital should be moved into place. That's the second thing. And the third thing is that capital should be moved within the same fiscal year. I think if that triangle of things existed, you would see a lot more private sector participation. And again, you would see 10, 15 times more private investment in those companies flowing in to sort of buttress the dollars of the Defense Department that are funding these things. One thing I've been playing around with is what would it take for the in-year movement of money in certain orders of magnitude? I think we sort of solved the sub-million dollar problem with a lot of uh, different organizations that have popped up. And again, it's it, all the credit in the world to the department and in Congress for making those things happen. But there are others orders of magnitude that matter. So how do you quickly move one to $10 million? I think you're seeing some flashes of that with what AFWorks is doing. And I think a lot of folks should sort of look at that model um, and perhaps pattern their own efforts off of it. But beyond that, there will be occasionally technologies that come along from new companies that again can't sustain the two to three year window of waiting, where you want to fund it to 10 to 50 million, 50 million to 100 million, 100 million plus. And you shouldn't do it a lot, but there should be mechanisms that the department can use for those occasions when an innovative technology comes along to fulfill an urgent need to move money around in those orders of magnitude. We should think through all of the ramifications of what that would mean. I actually don't think the FAR or any given acquisition policy would restrict that, but you certainly would need some changes to make that happen.
0: You've written a little bit about this in a Medium article. We'll put up a link to that. I just want to read this out of what you you wrote here because it's something pretty near and dear to my own heart. So you said, quote, the government should have many in-year options to move 1 to 10 million to new starts, several in-year options to move 10 to 100 million for scaling successful small programs, and then select 100 plus million dollar options to move quickly against urgent capabilities that need to be fielded immediately. If the government can develop a tool set around in-year movement of dollars of these scales and generally enable more agile and predictable flows of dollars, it will see a surge in small innovative companies, particularly in national defense. I think that's well said. And there's a little bit more conversation going on about this now. You've brought up AFWorks, which is now saying, you know we use small business innovation research dollars. Those are capped at three million, but we're going to go ahead and say, "Hey, we're going to be able to match program offices so we're already trying to start that transition, and then we're getting special you know approval to actually increase that. It's almost unlimited, but really it might be you know ten twenty million dollars, thirty million dollars, maybe something like that. And then just a couple of days ago, I actually saw Mac Thornberry. He was speaking at Brookings, and he was saying, we need greater budget flexibility. So, you know, it's starting to be an issue here. And I think being able to set aside some money that is unprogrammed, that can go to things that you didn't know was going to happen two or three years ago, and you didn't have to get 50-plus offices to sign off on it, that could be a really big thing for the department to be able to move quickly. So, you know, the DOD has all these billions of dollars for acquisition, and you know, is it just that in these program offices, they already have their money funded, there's just no more room for these new things that weren't known two years ago? You know, is it just the small business innovation dollars that are able to be redirected quickly? And that's what we need to kind of fix, broaden that kind of ability to be, you know, a little bit more faster moving on the on the funding side?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot of variables here. Um, I think. The discretion that they can move money around fast at those uh, magnitudes is limited. I mean, there are processes for urgent needs. And, and someone might look at the statement that I wrote and say, oh, it exists already. And, and I would say, yeah, have you ever actually tried to do it? Uh, it is it is painful. It's worse than pulling teeth. You know, yeah. wouldn't pick your
0: analogy. I don't care what it is. Because you're ultimately robbing from a program office that has, you know, stakeholders and their own interests in, in whatever the baseline plan was, right?
1: Yeah, moving money hurts. It means you're you're taking away from something else. Uh, I think that in order to to actually enable it to happen, these dollars need to be somewhere and need to be held by a capable group of people that can make pretty tough and sometimes pretty risky decisions, which is another part of this. So another sort of detractive statement to what I wrote would be, Well, what if it doesn't work or, you know, what if it's not fair competition and and, and all this kind of stuff? And I would say, yeah, those those are those are the challenges. But in the commercial sector, it's the risk taking that allows you to create something sort of wholly new in the world. And it's the bets that you lose and you lose 10, 20, 30 of them in a row before you get the one that's actually going to change the world in some way. That's how private sector capital works, particularly in the VC market. And I think in the defense world, we have to be okay with that. I actually think it's interesting that Will Roper, Dr. Roper, came out recently and said one of their uh, sort of upcoming events that we're participating in that actually a 50% success rate is a good thing. That is an amazing thing for a senior executive at the Pentagon to say, and it's absolutely the right thing to say. And so if we can get discretionary dollars put in the hands of folks that are empowered to take risks and some of those bets actually pay off, those bets will change the department.
0: Yeah, I think uh, I'm I'm also a big fan of kind of what's going on in the Air Force right now. I think Roper said when he's talking about advanced battle management system, you know, we had 28 different initiatives in here, and 26 of them worked on the first try. That's too high of a success rate. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's a very new kind of way of, of speaking in the Department of Defense, where we, ex- we kind of expect 100% success rate because... That's why we did all the planning, right? That's why contracts take two years. And that's why requirements take so many years, because we want to know exactly what it is we want, create a well-defined plan to go get it, and then just execute, right? So do you have any advice to some companies that are trying to bridge this valley of death? Like, what, what would you say to them as things like that they should focus on, think about? Sure. I think the, the number one thing
1: is to be honest with whoever your customer is, whoever that partner is on the other side of the table think of them as a partner. And if you say to them, okay, now we're at that part, they'll look at you and they'll say, yes, we're at that part. And we need to figure this out together. And so my first recommendation is sit with your partners and work with them on a plan to bridge the gap. They know it's going to take two or three years. You know, it's going to take two or three years, be honest with them for what sustains your company, how you can stay in business, what allows you to go and get more private capital, what allows you to go and keep hiring, they need to know those things so that they can plan with you to bridge that gap. And what you'll find is an extremely empathetic partner. Uh, I've never had someone react poorly to a conversation like that where you're just open and brutally honest about sort of just the nature of how small companies work. Once you have that plan, you need to tell them, you know, every two weeks or once a month or whatever the cadence is, we're, we're going to meet, and we're going to look at this thing and we're going to see where we are. And if we're on track and do we need to pull in, you know, more senior folks to help it push along and make sure that every month that that thing is on track and make sure that they're budgeting for it and understand how those conversations work. And if you feel confident that two, three years down the road, that budget cycle is going to come in your favor, you're going to keep yourself and your company motivated at doing the work. And that's all about just information sharing with that partner. Get to the point where you're confident and then just keep hammering. You know, there's other things you can do along the way. You know, never turn down an opportunity to field your product or test it with either the same group or a new group or a new environment to keep learning, keep getting official reporting, feedback, so you can change, modify, and make whatever it is that you do better. But I think the number one thing is don't think that that customer doesn't understand the sort of the situation that you're in. And, and be honest about it.
0: Great. I want to talk a little bit about some other unique aspects of working in the Department of Defense. So can you just talk a little bit about cybersecurity? Oh, sure. That's an interesting question. Um,
1: yeah, uh, you know, I, I think sure. in the commercial world, you have a due diligence to have good cybersecurity hygiene at your company. There are some standards and regulations, depending on the sector, for sure, you know, banking, healthcare, things like that. The Defense Department is is just wildly different, much more strict. I mean, these things are published. You can go read them. What I would probably recommend if you're not familiar with uh, things like, you know, if I say the word IATT or ATO and you don't know what that abbreviation means, it's probably a good sign that you should call an advisor or another company who's been through it before uh, and start to get advice for how to prepare yourself for getting yourself able to pass a lot of these cybersecurity sort of hygiene tests that the government's going to put you through. If you're not prepared for it, it'll just delay what you're doing by, I mean, literally years sometimes. And so prepare early and often for it. Understand what these things mean. There's a lot of folks who I'm sure if you're trying to work for the Defense Department, you would know that's probably been through these things before and and start to sort of solicit their feedback on this stuff.
0: So one of the things that we've been hearing about cybersecurity is, hey, industry, this is an allowable cost. You can get this reimbursed through your defense contracts. But what about some companies, you know, small companies that either don't have a lot of work or have yet to do work with the Department of Defense? Would you recommend, look, this is just one of the uh, prices to pay to get into the defense industry. Just take care of it first, even if it's on your own dollar, and then you can recoup that later. Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's a cost of doing business. Uh, Yeah,
1: I wouldn't overthink it. I think there's ways you can go overboard. what you have to think about is it's actually a risk management framework. It's not like a set of requirements. So if you have successfully managed your risk for everything they're asking, um, it's not necessarily that you have to do it, but you have to account for it. And so it is possible to go overboard. I think you need to strike the right balance. I think you can inherit a lot of security through things like, you know, using Amazon's GovCloud and Mm -hmm. and sort of pre-approved infrastructure services and stuff like that. But yeah, I think there's no sort of excuse for it. And you should just realize it's the Department of Defense and they're going to have some requirements you're probably not used to.
0: Yeah. I think the Air Force, again, you know, taking the lead here, they've, you know, created Cloud One and Platform One. So they're creating their own enterprise infrastructure for information technology. Do you think that also, like, just being able to build that out, maybe inherit some of those uh, security protocols. Do you think that will ease some of the burden on industry? You know, what's what's your general view of what's going on there? Are you plugging into that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to our the first part of the conversation, which is it's a platform approach. And one of the beauties of it is you get to inherit all the things that that platform provides, including security guarantees. And so if it can provide lift to projects and make them move faster because they've already accounted for a lot of the cybersecurity and other hurdles you might otherwise run into, it's great. And if it works,
0: we're going to use it and we're all about it. I wanted to ask you real quick, did you do you guys have any programs that you're working on that have like a continuous authority to operate a continuous ATO with the government? Or are you looking for those? What's, what's your view there?
1: Yeah, it, it's different for every organization. So we have ATOs, IATTs, different authorities on different networks, stuff like that. Definitely no one size fits all. But as we run across them as an organization, you just sort of check them off one by one.
0: So here's another uh, aspect of doing business with the Department of Defense: cost and pricing data, especially to go, you know, justify the reasonableness of whatever it is <laughs> that you're trying to win a contract on. So, you know, what what are some challenges, or what are your views on on cost and pricing data? particularly if it's not uh, something where you're billing sort of labor hours
1: and that's the basis of, of your cost. If it's um, a commercial price list or a manufacturer suggested retail price or, or whatever it is, the first couple contracts you are going to be doing will be challenging and you're going to have to justify your cost based on sort of market comparison. Sort of going back to some of my advice on how to cross the valley of death, it's yet another good example of treat your government customer as your partner and tell them, this is the first time I've ever done this as a company. This is what we charge commercially, but I need advice for how we can get through this together. And again, nine times out of 10, the contracting officer is going to have a real conversation with you about what's required, what's needed, what's important, what's not important, potential pitfalls, stuff like that. And you're going to learn a lot really fast. It's another thing that's sort of easy to seek advice on from other companies. And As you do more and more of them, it becomes a self-licking ice cream cone. So as the government has bought and procured more of your products, more of your potential services or whatever it is that you do, that becomes a justification for the next contract. And so after a while, it, it ends up not being a barrier. But in the beginning, you certainly have to treat it with care and respect and, again, work with your government customer as a partner to solve it.
0: I was wondering, you know, kind of along these lines... For companies that are startups, small range, you know, 15, less than a hundred people, something like that. Do you think like, what is the prospect for doing real dual use? Because it seems like some of the motions for sales, for just product development and the rest are pretty unique in the defense sector. So can like a company at that size really go for like defense and commercial at the same time? And then they can say, Hey, look, we have a comparable thing. That's what we're charging. Here's a redacted invoice here's some of my price justification. Do you see that happening kind of in the defense industry that you do have these real dual use or are there defense unique plays that are kind of running into more difficulty here?
1: Well, first for a 10 to 15 person company, I would always recommend just do what you do best and don't try and sort of split the baby and go solve some problems in one space and get really comfortable and mature and grow and and then go to the other side. Mm -hmm. I think it is risky at that size to, to be trying to sort of do both. I absolutely think there are products that are dual use. I think some take very, very small amounts of changes, you know, moving sort of, let's say, commercial to defense. Some take a lot of changes where you have to realize the significant cost that that's going to put on your company, uh, your resources, your people, your engineering time. And so once you're on the government side, it has to be worth it. And I think the government has to realize that if the cost has increased from the commercial price list, and there are good reasons for it, then there are good reasons for it. And so every company sort of needs to make these business decisions, you know, sort of unique to them. But I absolutely think there are cases where going towards defense, if you're a commercial company only right now, makes a whole lot of sense.
0: I think this is also a little bit related to cost and pricing data, especially, you know, like if you have a cost plus contract, usually you have to do cost accounting at a quite a low level. And then that builds up this archive that you can kind of just cost things out. But does your company accept cost plus contracts? Or are you guys trying to stay like, I'm in fixed price world only? And how does that, you know, what's the business strategy around like the contract types that you're looking for? I think our costing model stems
1: from just sort of who we are as a company. So Andorl is a defense products company. Uh, We focus on getting products, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80% of the way there, and then going to the government and, and trying to start a project together then working with them to, to get it over the hump to that perfect thing that fits that perfect need. A lot of our efforts are informed by our knowledge of the department and, and sort of how they think through things and, and things like that. We hire and, and retain a lot of veterans as an example to inform our product development. Uh, but because we're a defense products company, it, it sort of naturally leads us to contract structures that are firm fixed based on sort of the price of the, the product and um, maybe some, you know, minor support stuff that sort of surrounds it. Will there ever be a day in the history of Andurl where we do a cost plus or, or, or something like that? Probably not, but maybe, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say no if it made business sense. And that is definitely something that uh, we've learned along the way is, you know, folks ask us all the time, you know, oh, what do you prefer? Do you prefer OTAs or Cibers or or whatever? What's your vehicle of choice? And our answer is, Literally any vehicle that makes sense for what that project is. I think as a small company, you can't be choosy about these things. Right. Uh, you have to figure out sort of in isolation for every project what makes sense um,
0: and then do it and do it well. It's interesting what you said. You, you'll take a product kind of 50, 60, 70 percent of the way there before you go show government what you got, get the feedback and, and start like laying down the project plans. Uh, you know, I guess that reduces some of the risk, right? And provides some information to kind of already go on the, because a lot of companies, right? It's too risky to do this thing that the government wants, you know, so we want a cost plus contract because there's, we want to be able to share in the risk rather than kind of taking a lot of that on ourselves. So you guys kind of have a philosophy of, you know, we will go out, we believe in something, we're going to invest in, in bringing it up to speed. And then we think that, our ideas, our products are superior. When we show them, the government will want them. That's right. So I, I think you,
1: you're describing it correctly as sort of a, a risk equation. So in a lot of current contracting models, the government bears all the risk. Mm-hmm. And what we're doing is saying, no, we're going to shoulder a lot of that. And we're going to spend a lot of our own money and time to prove this thing out and then bring it to you when it's at a state where it makes sense. We don't just do that because we're crazy. We do that for a good reason. It allows us to move extremely fast to rapidly prototype and iterate and build these things because we can control all aspects of it to a certain point. Now, we're not being silly about it. You know, we're going to keep folks in the loop in terms of what we're doing um, along the way so that we're not, you know, building something that's just going to fall flat once we approach the market. But yeah, we, we take on a whole lot of risk. And we take a whole lot of bets
0: and sometimes they pay off and hopefully most times they don't. <laughs> yeah. It seems like a pretty confident, I want to say, kind of stance to take to say, we're we're going to do it. We believe in our process and we'll put our products up to the test to, against anybody else. And we think someone's going to want that because, you know, one of the things I think about is, you know, when does the government come in on the design process? And, you know, there's a bunch of quotes and you, you hear people talk about it a lot, you know, like. There's a split design process. No one's really owning the thing. And it's kind of like a design by committee. I don't want to bring it back to Mark Andreessen, but again, he says like, you know, the best ideas, the ones that really are going to get you that 10X reward, those are the ones that, you know, are non-consensual, right? Like if everybody in the room of 10 people, and George Sherr said this, who was the former VP of Boeing back in the B-52 days, he was saying, you know, like, if you get a room full of 10 people together, you would never get them all to vote up on the radio, or on atomic energy, or the jet engine. So, do you guys think that you know this ability to kind of own the design process, have like a, a real voice in it, and then iterate with the government when you're ready? You know, does that help you get off on the right foot of what the new design should be?
1: You know, yes and no. Yes and um, no. I think that to build good products, it's extremely important for a person or a very small group of people to have. A compelling vision for where that thing is going to be in a month, in six months, in a year, and in the future. It's a difficult thing to do, I and mean, to sort of maintain that vision throughout the life of a product. It gets more and more difficult as that product gets into the wild to maintain sort of that that kernel of what that thing needs to be, because that's what you sort of believe it it has to be. I think that drives a lot of uh, of us at Andrel. It's extremely motivating, but it's never done in absence of thinking through and deeply thinking through how our government customers are going to use these things. You can't get too far down a road that you can't walk back from. If it's reacted too poorly or there are changes that need to be made, you sort of have to do it, striking that balance between maintaining that positive control and then inviting in government expertise along the way to sort of walk that journey with you.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things I often hear about is, you know, you really want to bring your customer along. You don't really want to be going too far, even on the commercial side, before you, you get customers, right? So that makes a lot of sense what you're saying there, and that's why you also have veterans that you're bringing on to gain some of that perspective yourself in-house. So the next thing here I kind of want to talk about, you know, what's different kind of in defense than, you know, maybe other markets is uh, intellectual property. How, how do you see that being handled?
1: So first caveat, I am not an expert at this. Uh, we certainly have on our team experts, mm-hmm. you know, sort of in the, in the dark art of, of IP and IP rights and stuff like that. For us, it's pretty simple. You know, we build a lot of things internally that we have background IP to um, that the government obviously says, yes, like clearly this is yours. But we have ambitions to build, you know, things like operating systems for battle networks that clearly have to have some government ownership. It cannot be uh, all on, all in one, all in the other. I think working those balances end up being unique to like, given scenarios. But what we've found is if you really have the conversation and the hard conversation with, with the experts on both sides, there's often sort of a, a meeting in the middle that makes sense. Um, I think there's been a lot of writing on this you know, by the Defense Innovation Board and organizations like that to try and advance this dialogue. I think it's incredibly important, Uh, you know, but ultimately for our work and for many, uh, for the work by many companies that look like ours, we've always found a a productive way to move forward.
0: And the last one here, and you've, you wrote another medium article on this one. So what are some of the challenges associated with security clearances? Oh man, yeah. Can I get on my uh, soapbox (laughs) here for a
1: little bit? Um, Sure thing. It's a tremendous barrier to entry to new companies and there's sort of this crazy circular logic thing that happens uh, early on in a company, which is endlessly frustrating, where a customer will say, you know, we love your stuff, but you need sort of clearances to work on it before we can give you a contract. And the company says, well, we need the contract in order to get the clearances. Yeah. And then everybody just sort of stares at each other blankly, and nothing ever happens. And so early on in in sort of companies' growth, they go through these sort of ugly methods to get themselves cleared. And um, sometimes it, it literally takes years to do. And it's all silly. It, it's just like, it's just, it doesn't need to be that way. So that sort of folks listening um, have a little bit more sort of clarity in, in what we're talking about. One one key point here is that for a private company, the government does not hold that person's clearance. So me, Matt Steckman, my clearance is held by... Endural Industries. And Endural Industries is certified by the government to do so. In many countries, it is not like that. The government holds all the clearances. And so the company doesn't have to go through any, any hurdles uh, in order to then submit their people to be cleared. Um, I think that's a tremendous barrier to entry to new companies. And I, I think it's actually something that's easily solved with uh, not very complicated policy changes.
0: So you're thinking of something a little bit like, the government basically has an open policy, and you can kind of come in and say, I have a need to kind of just get this level of security, and then the government kind of owns that process between them and the individual, regardless of like what contracts have already been won or not won by, by the company. I
1: think what you probably do, since we already have a, uh, a process that works where the companies are holding the clearances, is you, you don't change that, but what you do is you provide a bridge to new companies so that if you know getting your ability as a company to do this will take, call it three years. There are organizations within the government that are empowered to help you with your clearances to fill that gap until such time that your company can get certified to do so. That That's probably the approach I generally find in, in sort of defense and policy in general. You should not try and change the whole thing. It's just usually way too complicated. There's just so much stuff wrapped up in this. But, You can see where the gaps are, and you can do simple things to fill the gap.
0: Yeah, this reminds me of kind of (laughs) what we were talking a little bit about earlier. Do you think, like, if the government liberally used more, like, cooperative research and development agreements or unfunded OTs, other transactions, for example, to say, hey, here's a vehicle, you can get access to some of our requirements, and you can start getting, you know – approved for for security clearances, even though we're not throwing you a bunch of money yet, but this will kind of, like, roll out the welcome mat.
1: <laughs> I think that's certainly potentially a solution, but you would have to do it with a lot of intentionality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Kratos would have to, like, look and feel fit to purpose Yeah, uh, f- for exactly that need, uh, as opposed to sort of what they're designed for now. But it's certainly a mechanism that
0: could, that could help here. So you've been... Uh, a leader at a fast-growing company in the defense industry for a couple years now, and before you were at Palantir, right? A couple other experiences that you've had as well. So I'd just like you to give us a little indication, and what have you learned about managing people in a fast-growing company, especially in the defense sector? (laughs) I think uh, particularly
1: for sort of companies you would think about as hyper-growth is probably the the ridiculous word that you use, (laughs) um, giving individuals and and folks outcomes to push for, realizing that you or anybody sort of on the leadership team is really not going to have all that much time in the world to do anything but put as many fingers in the dam as you possibly can, setting up sort of rails around those outcomes and just letting them go and do their thing. It requires hiring a certain type of person and screening for that from the get-go. Uh, people that are comfortable in taking like specific outcomes but extremely nebulous ways to actually go and achieve it um, and screening for that from the very beginning in your interview process and realizing that it's actually okay in a hiring process to find an absolutely brilliant person that just doesn't make sense because of the structure and the nature of your company. There's plenty, plenty of smart people that uh, once they get to a hyper-growth startup, don't do well. And not because they're not talented, it's just because it's a very specific type of way doing business and working where there are rules, but there really are no rules. There's structure, but there really is no structure. Every day things sort of change. Nothing's quite written down about how the organization is structured. And there's some people that thrive in that environment and there's some people that don't. And um, you need to be okay as, as a leader sort of recognizing that difference and making sure the folks you're bringing in for the most part are those people that will thrive.
0: Do you guys think about like how you actively manage culture? Like That's a, a, a nebulous term right there, right? <laughs> so, how, how, do you guys like, try to actively manage it? What, what, are you, what are your thoughts about just the culture of, of a fast-growing firm?
1: I think it's a lot about the people that you bring in from the very beginning and sort of realizing that pick a number, 100 people, however many people you're bringing into your company in, in any given year. Instead of thinking about it as, I need to go find those 100 people, you should think about it as, there are 100 people in the world that absolutely want to work at this company and will be extremely successful when they're here, and that's how we're going to hire. And once those people arrive, not that the culture sort of solves itself, but you've given yourself a massive leg up into establishing just a really, really
0: positive work environment. Is there anything else that you'd like to uh, close on here?
1: No, I mean, I I would say I I really appreciate what you do. I think these are extremely important subjects. I think the dialogue that we're seeing now is actually unique. Um, There are a lot of leaders that want to change and are willing to have conversations. Endural is is certainly a part of those. There are other companies uh, doing the same. And then I'm hoping, you know, next year or in two years when we talk again, um, that we're having more and more success stories to share, not just for Endural, but for the community of, of new companies out
0: there. Matt Steckman, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks a lot. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.